Good morning. It's great to see you. Thank you, Charles. We're going to try PowerPoint and see how that goes. Um, Switched on. Um, It's great to see most of your faces. Nice to have uh, Cameron's with us. Uh, Nice to have you with us. Mr. Anderson, he'd be smiling with his team doing very well. Great to just worship together this morning. Thanks very much for leading us, Dave and the band. We're going to read John's version of the triumphal entry. So John chapter 12, verses 12 to 16. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. As it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Over the last few weeks... We've been looking at some of the parables that Jesus told. The parables were uh, addressed to different audiences. Sometimes it was the crowd. Sometimes it was the Pharisees. Sometimes it was the disciples. But they were all stories that Jesus would challenge them with, challenge them about their response to him uh, and who he was. And Jesus made it clear that it was really only people who were spiritually alive that would, that would really get the message. He said, people who had ears to hear and eyes to see would appreciate what the parables were really saying. And Sean Brennan was with us just a, a couple of weeks ago and uh, he told us about the parable of the ten miners. Uh, you may recall that. And he, and he told us that you need to have bifocal lenses. I need, uh, I don't know what I need uh, to see, but certainly bifocal lenses would probably help. So you've got something you can see close with and something that you can see far away with. And we're going to do a bit more of that this morning with respect to the triumphal entry of Jesus, as uh, Tim helpfully showed us in that animation, Jerusalem was a city that he was coming to on traditionally what we call Palm Sunday. And all four Gospels have a narrative about uh, the triumphal entry. And I thought it would be interesting just for a second to know what it is that the different writers say before they give their account of Palm Sunday. For Matthew and Mark, it was both 
the healing of the blind man or men in Jericho on Jesus' way up to Jerusalem. For look, it was that parable of the ten miners that we heard just a couple of weeks ago, which was Jesus attempting to instruct those who had ears to hear, to see that the kingdom of God was not coming as quickly as they had anticipated. And for John, the verses just before uh, our reading today, they were a bit more sinister. Verses 10 and 11 of John 12, they talk about um, the Pharisees uh, muttering to themselves. They'd gone out to Bethany and they'd seen the huge crowd that had come there to see Lazarus that friend of Jesus who he had raised from the dead after four days. And the chief priests, as we saw in that animation, they didn't like uh, the attention at all that Jesus was getting. And so verses 10 and 11 say, the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. The people, they wanted a king to save them from the oppression of the Romans. This is what Luke tells us they were expecting just before the triumphal entry. But the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they just wanted rid of him. They wanted rid of Jesus. They wanted him out of the way. So while the gospel writers focused on different events prior to the triumphal entry, the actual narrative around the day is pretty similar in all of the gospels. The crowds anticipated that freedom from occupation and oppression from the Romans was coming and that Jesus would be the Messiah who would achieve this for them. The cries of Hosanna That word, uh, Dave rightly said, has become so uh, attached to Palm Sunday. That literally means, save us. The hundreds of thousands of people who were there in Jerusalem were about to celebrate the rescue of uh, the children of Israel from the oppression in Egypt in the Passover feast. And these same people we're looking for another miraculous rescue from the Romans, from the oppression that they were suffering, and they believed that Jesus could provide that for them. He was the one. We're going to try this. Will I keep trying or will it? who was coming in the name of the Lord. He was the one who would be crowned king of Israel. But there was something slightly unusual about this regal procession. Instead of a a great white horse, uh, which was the norm for a triumphal entry in those days, Jesus was sitting on a young donkey. The prophecy that John quotes uh, 
verse 15, comes from the book of Zechariah with a plea for the people, don't be afraid, daughter Zion, Jews, the people in Jerusalem. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Don't be afraid. Maybe they were a bit anxious that the appearance of a king coming on a donkey's coat was not the mark of a mighty military warrior who would rescue the people from Rome and become king of a nation that they were anticipating would become the world's superpower. And of course, that's absolutely true. Jesus wasn't interested in the material restoration of the kingdom of Israel, but he was absolutely committed to the inauguration of the kingdom of God. The king of this kingdom was an altogether different king. This king's procession would lead to a very different coronation and a very different crown. At the end of this week, Jesus would wear a crown of thorns on a Roman cross. Not the sort of coronation the people were expecting or hoping for. In a sense, the disciples weren't very different in terms of their understanding uh, because we read in verse 16 it was only looking back at the events of Palm Sunday that they realized that the prophecies written by Zechariah were being fulfilled that day. The kingdom had come in Jesus. In his early ministry, he spoke about the kingdom of God being near or at hand. He talked about it being in their midst. uh, And he'd made it clear that it would begin very small and grow. Uh, He compared it to a mustard seed that would grow into a large tree with both Jew and Gentile being its subjects. And a few chapters later on in John's Gospel, it's Pilate who challenges Jesus about his status as king. And Jesus tells him that his kingdom wasn't of this world. And Pilate, as we know, placed the notice on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. That was his crime, according to the Jewish leaders. They had made it clear themselves that uh, they wanted rid of him. We will not have this man to rule over us, is what they said. And on that Good Friday, they went as far as declaring, we have no king but Caesar, when Pilate wanted to release Jesus. The Jews would not bow before King Jesus. They would rather have Caesar, someone outside their race, religion, and culture, to be their king. There was no way they were going to swear allegiance to King Jesus. They would rather swear allegiance to the ruler of the Roman Empire than the ruler of God's kingdom. The cross for them was not a throne. 
It was a place of execution, weakness. And as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians, it's a place of foolishness. And for most of society today, that's true. They reject absolutely King Jesus. They reject the cross. Their allegiance is to the kings of this age, materialism, individualism, political correctness. God's kingdom, sadly, is of no interest to them. As I've said, John makes it clear that the disciples didn't understand the triumphal entry of Jesus on a donkey. It was only after Jesus was glorified, died, raised and ascended to heaven that they really began to realize what the kingdom of God was all about. This King Jesus was not Caesar with all his pomp, ceremony, corruption and iron rule, but he was a serving king riding on a donkey, humble, just and righteous. And to follow him to be a citizen of his kingdom meant a calling to do likewise. The kingdom of God was established, was inaugurated when Jesus died and rose again. The kingdom had come. But as we were reminded by Sean Brennan a, a, a fortnight ago, we were, you know, if we look with uh, those eyes to the future, the kingdom has come, but it is also coming. Jesus will come again. And when that happens, Every knee will bow and confess that he is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. As Tim reminded us in his prayer and Paul writes in Philippians 2. The kingdom of God has come and we have a king but has not yet fully come. There is that tension of the now and not yet, the already and the still to come. And for the the next 15 minutes or so, I just want to explore a bit more the now and not yet of the kingdom. The kingdom come and the kingdom coming. Firstly, in the kingdom come, we are forgiven sinners. But in the kingdom coming, we will be sinless. The Bible teaches that God can't tolerate sin. He is absolutely holy. Jesus is absolutely holy. His life on earth was perfectly lived in every way. He was sinless. But as he was crowned king of the Jews on the cross, it wasn't just Jesus of Nazareth, a man. He was Jesus, God's son. And he ushered in the kingdom of God. He made it possible for us to have our sins forgiven. 
if we repent and acknowledge Jesus as king of our lives. But if you're anything like me, you know that each day when you get up, what we think and what we do is not perfect by any means. We uh, continue to choose our ways and not God's ways. We are much more likely uh, to choose the big white horse rather than the young donkey. Pride, gossip, judgmental, unforgiving attitude and many other sins continue to be problems for us. So while we know our sins are forgiven in the here and now, we're very much aware that we continue to be sinful. It's only when King Jesus returns that the kingdom of God will be fully established and then we will be sinless. Sin is not a part of the coming kingdom of God. Secondly, in the kingdom come, the foe, Satan, is tethered. But in the kingdom coming, he is banished forever. When Jesus became King Jesus on the cross, Satan, the devil, was dealt a significant blow. The Bible talks about him being tethered or restrained. Jesus himself in Matthew and Mark tells that parable about binding the strong man, the strong man being the devil. When Jesus took our place on the cross and then was raised to life, he crushed the serpent's head as was foretold right at the start of the Bible in Genesis Three, He disarmed Satan. That doesn't mean Satan is powerless. He still has significant power, but he is tethered or restrained. And, uh, you know, a few years ago, John Risbridger uh, at Keswick gave us uh, quite a helpful illustration just to think about that a bit more. It was um, the year that Andy Murray got beaten by Roger Federer in Wimbledon final um, 2012. And he, he asked us to imagine that Federer was, had a chain and he was tethered so they could only move a few feet either way of the tee on his side of the court. And uh, you know, if, if Andy Murray hit it anywhere within his range, then it was likely to be coming back with interest. But if he remembered that he was chained and his uh, backhand down the line or his topspin forehand uh, cross court was going to beat him if he remembered he was chained and victory would be his. So it is for us now. In Jesus, we have authority to resist Satan to resist temptation. And because on the cross Jesus disarmed Satan, there are no longer any accusations or debts that he can bring to us. Jesus dealt with all our sin on the cross. But we don't have to look too far to see the havoc 
and destruction that a few evil men uh, who have no interest at all in the authority of Jesus can cause, you know, Ukraine, North Korea, Afghanistan, Yemen, Syria, all of these places. But if you stop to think what it would be like if that was everywhere, that was the norm everywhere, you know, what a, a terrible situation that would be. But there is a day coming when Satan will be dealt with completely and Finally, the Bible talks about that in Revelation 20, where Satan will be thrown into the great lake of fire. That is the not yet for Satan. Now he has been tethered by the cross. But when Jesus comes again, he will be completely defeated and banished to what the Bible calls hell. And hell is a a very serious issue because the Bible also teaches that for people who reject Jesus as king of their lives, who ignore his offer of forgiveness, then they very sadly too will spend eternity separated from a holy God in the very real place that the Bible calls hell. Thirdly, in the kingdom, we see a reflection of Jesus. But in the kingdom coming, we will see him face to face. The disciples thought they had a good grasp of who Jesus was. They'd seen the miracles. They'd seen his power over nature, as Tim reminded us. They'd seen him raise Lazarus from the dead and deal with the Pharisees, silence all their arguments. They had an appreciation of Jesus that went so far, but it wasn't quite right. And for us now, we have an appreciation of Jesus. You know, we are, we wonder at his glory. We are amazed at his grace towards us and we're astounded at his love for us and as uh, uh, Tim's reminded a couple of times already there is that verse in Hebrews, Hebrews 12 that tells us we should be fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith for the joy set before him he endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the Father. But like the disciples on Palm Sunday, we can never really appreciate the wonder of who King Jesus is and understand fully what he has done in the here and now. But when Jesus comes back, his kingdom will be fully established the kingdom coming and we will see him glorified when Paul wrote to the Corinthian church he said for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror then we shall see face to face now I know in part 
then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. But just because we can't fully appreciate King Jesus yet, doesn't mean that we shouldn't polish the mirror a bit so that we can get a better view or improve our view. And I don't know what that'll be for you, but for me, that is, you know, when I attend the communion service, it's in the evenings at the moment, you know, when we're, uh, that's when I get my best view, because it's no coincidence that when we're urged to be fixing our eyes on Jesus, that the next phrase is about the cross. Because that is where we see the glory of King Jesus. And when we meet to take communion together, uh, that is where our focus is. Because that's exactly what he's asked us to do. To take bread and wine in memory of his body broken and his blood shed on the cross for us. And you'll remember that the Bible says that we were taking communion to proclaim the death of Jesus until he comes again. The now is getting a better appreciation of who Jesus is. But the not yet is seeing him face to face. And then we won't need bread and wine as a a symbol because we'll have the the real thing. We will be with King Jesus. And more amazingly, as John writes uh, in his letter to the church, we'll be like him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what will be is not yet being made known. But we know that when Jesus, when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Fourthly and finally, in the kingdom come, we have the first fruits of our inheritance, but in the kingdom coming, we will have a harvest or a feast. When the people were shouting Hosanna and blessed is the king of Israel, they were hoping that Jesus would be re-establishing Israel. The land of Israel was what the Jews believed was their inheritance from God. In the Old Testament, we read of God calling Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans with a promise that he would give him a land where his ancestors would be blessed and that they would be a blessing to the world. Psalm 105, to you I will give the land of Canaan as a portion you will inherit. The promised land, as we often called it, became the land of Israel. But at the time Jesus was walking the earth, there was no Israel. There was Judea, there was Galilee, there was Samaria, there was Decapolis. The the people had hoped that Jesus would restore to them the land that they believed God had promised this kingdom of Israel. And now for them, at that time, was just a collection of regions with different puppet rulers under the reign of Caesar. They're not yet their hope. 
was the kingdom of Israel. That was their hope. But Jesus had made it clear right from the start of his ministry that his kingdom was not going to be a restoration of the land of Israel. The inheritance he was offering was something altogether better and more wonderful than they could ever imagine. And he'd given them plenty of warning about that, the Sermon on the Mount, where he laid out his manifesto, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The inheritance that Jesus is offering is not a land, but eternal life in his kingdom. And he promises that he'll come and take us to be with him. John 14, he said to his disciples that he was going to prepare a place for them and for us. And if he goes, he'll come back and take us to be with him. This won't be a restored land or kingdom of Israel, but something new. Revelation 21, Jesus says, Behold, I am making everything new. The Bible teaches that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And Jesus offers all of us the opportunity to be part of the coming kingdom if we come to the cross and make him king of our lives now. And if we do that, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit will come and live within us. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he wrote, When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who has a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. If we believe the gospel of Jesus, then the Holy Spirit, lives within us. That is our now. We have God's Spirit working in us, empowering us, teaching us more about Jesus, revealing the truth of God's Word when we read it, comforting us, giving us strength in the struggles of life. But there is a day when that deposit will be fully realized when King Jesus returns. Romans 8 talks about the first fruit of the Spirit when we come to faith. There is a harvest and a feast coming. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee that that will happen. The deposit or the down payment now gives us that guarantee that the not yet of King Jesus coming back will happen and as we know from our recent studies there, nobody knows when that will be but it will happen in the meantime we are to be a people of praise living with certain hope a people who are preparing for this new kingdom where our inheritance lies and Peter who was there that first Palm Sunday wrote this 
to the scattered Christians of his time. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. And as we've heard a, a fair bit in the, in the parables we've looked at, how we behave in the present will have some uh, bearing on our inheritance in the future. Jesus told us in the parables to be ready, to be living expectantly and not to be storing up stuff here on earth because even though Jesus is our king now, the kingdom that is coming operates in a completely different currency where what we have done with all that God has given us, our time, our resources, our responsibilities, our talents, what we have done with them in the service of King Jesus will determine what the harvest of our inheritance will be. His kingdom has come and spectacularly, fabulously, we are forgiven sinners. But in the kingdom coming, we will be sinless. There is no sin in the coming kingdom. In the kingdom come, Satan, our foe, is tethered. But in the kingdom coming, he will be banished forever. In the kingdom come, now we see a reflection of Jesus. But in the kingdom coming, we will see him face to face. In the kingdom come, we have the first fruits of our inheritance. But in the kingdom coming, we will have a harvest. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He is the king. And you can bow the knee and serve him now. And there will be a glorious inheritance for you. So let's all make him king of our lives now. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for King Jesus. When the crowds were uh, acclaiming him on that first Palm Sunday, they had no idea what would happen later in the week. And yet, for us, having the, the real joy of looking back to that first Easter weekend, we see our Lord Jesus, our Saviour, becoming King on a Roman cross. And Father, we are so grateful for your grace towards us. And as we live and serve King Jesus now, we ask that you will 
through your spirit, that deposit, it is our guarantee of the king coming back. That through your spirit, you will help us as we serve to be citizens that worship and bow the knee and do things expectantly of the kingdom coming. So, Father, we thank you for Jesus. We ask that this Easter time will be a a real uh, time of celebration and reflection of what you have done for us and the power that you have as we seek to serve you and to live for you. We offer our worship in the glorious name of King Jesus. Amen.